Hi, welcome to BA Brew. I'm Jonathan. I'm Carl. I'm Mike. Today we're going to be talking about Carl's new book and its software development pearls. Um, and I've got a, I've got a kind of an opening question, Carl, that I thought about um, for this pod. And I did want to welcome you back to the brew as well. So you're our first ever uh, <laughs> returning guest. Um, we've never had one, but um, the thing I wanted to ask you, Carl, was where do you find the energy and enthusiasm? So last time we met, you just written a book, um, and I've, I've, I've read quite a number of your books um, now, um, but where do, you, where do you find the energy and enthusiasm to, to share the, the, the pearls in this instance? Oh, that's a good question, Jonathan, and thanks for having me back. Um, I guess there's a fine line between being a repeat guest and a repeat offender, <laughs> but uh, I'm happy to be with you again. I certainly enjoyed our previous conversation. You know, I had not planned to write this book, but several things kind of came together that uh, led to it. Um, First, about a year and a half ago, I had posted an article on medium.com. I have an account there where I've got a lot of articles. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty much the same, the kernel of the same content. Uh, it was called something like Lessons from 50 Years of Software Experience. I find it hard to imagine, but I, I took Fortran in college uh, 51 years ago. <laughs> so and since then, I've done a lot of different things in software and, and other areas, but um, uh, I came up with this list of things that I've learned over the course of, of those experiences. And so I posted an article about that and it just got a tremendous response. You know, you put something out there, a book, an article, a presentation, you never know what the reaction is going to be, right? But it got such a good response. I said, well, maybe there's something in there. And then the second thing that happened is that I was facing yet a second year of being stuck at home most of the time, hmm. thanks to COVID, and I needed something to do, frankly. So I wrote another book. Wow, wow! And it's um, so I've I've not read all of the book. I'm I'm probably about sixty percent of the way through. But what I found myself doing is I read it, kind of starting going through, and then I thought I want to skip to the chapters that I'm really interested in. Sure. Um, and and so I, I found myself looking at the table of them and. My favorite section that I've read thus far is the section on quality. Um, ah, good. Some really good fundamentals in there that I think um, all BAs, all change professionals should be aware of the difference between, for example, quality, quality checking, quality control, and quality assurance. Um, and, and, and that area, I, I love talking about quality. I like talking about lean and, and applying lean thinking, lean practices anyway. But um, I just think it's some fundamental stuff in there in terms of you know, checking twice. Um, the lessons are around woodworking, Carl. You, you reminisce <laughs> in the book around uh, trying to build, I don't know what, what you were building, some sort of plank. You had to build it <laughs> well, nine times. It's yeah, like you had to buy the wood nine <laughs> times as well. Right, and that was, that was, I think, an interesting point about this book. And we all have had these experiences in our lives where something small happened just in the course of daily life and, or your, your job. And if you're paying attention, you realize, wow, there's something important here that I should remember for the rest of my life and use whenever it fits. And the example you're talking about was something I learned in ninth grade wood shop. Uh, I wasn't very good at shop, uh, but 
what happened is the, the first project we had was to build a little, they called it a sandpaper block. It was a little piece of wood about this big made from a two by four. And this was just to practice, you know, drawing things up in mechanical drawings and, and uh, using tools, you know, sanders and, and planes and saws and drills, just, just to practice using tools. And if you got it too small or put the hole in the wrong place, we had to start over. Mm -hmm. And I made a lot of mistakes and it took me nine tries. And yes, we had to buy a new piece of two yeah. by four for five cents each time. So there was a price associated with this. <laughs> and I noticed that one of the people in my class finished before me and only took two tries. Mm. And that was when I really learned the idea about quality, which is, you know, go slow to go fast. I was yeah. rushing to get it done and I made mistakes and I had to start over. I hate rework. That's another thing I learned from that. I hate doing things over. So that turns into a software development pearl 55 or 60 years later that says, uh, take the time to do it right the first time and you don't have to do it over and it's cheaper and faster and less painful. And that's, I think, a powerful lesson yeah. that applies to almost anything. Yeah. And there's, um, I, I can't remember which lesson, but there's team A and team B. And there's one team A rushes ahead with no software engineering practices mess it up team b okay. take their time and think it through and um the the company did the story you know the team b eventually have to rework the entirety of team a's exactly output and it's like build the quality in mm. um i really the hints i obviously i i, I empathize and agree with the you know the quality <laughs> idea and hence me zooming in on that chapter i was like yep <laughs> there's some really useful pearls mike yeah, I mean, stood out for you. Just following on on that, there was there's something that uh, really chimes uh, to me on that, which was uh, a phrase that somebody said: uh, "Measure twice, cut once." That was a bit of advice from Woodwork. And thinking about that, actually, that sort of doing the preparation right beforehand is the thing that helps. And and it put me in mind of um, I, I decided I wanted to do a, a proper curry, so I got a curry recipe book, and I wanted to roast the spices and do everything properly. And I remember going through this and I'd get so far in the recipe and thought, oh, I haven't got those spices. So I'd get in the car, zoom down the road to the supermarket and get a couple of the spices that were missing. Back home, read a bit more of the recipe <laughs> and there was another spice that was missing. <laughs> oh, zoom down the road. I must have, I think I must have gone out four times before I realised I need to read the whole recipe <laughs> to check what I'm supposed to be doing before I nip out in the car again. Um, needless to say, the, um, the, the meal took me about six hours to prepare with all the journeys out to get the spices, roasting the spices. And, whatever, and I never did a curry from scratch again after that. I thought, <laughs> I'm just going to get the spices already mixed and already done. But that's probably a good example of where actually if I would just done that proper preparation first, then I'd have uh, I'd have been fine after that. Yeah, but, save, yeah. save the time. Um, I had a chemistry teacher in high school who said, when all else fails, read the instructions. <laughs> it's it's using a Y chromosome, isn't it? That uh, <laughs> you think, I can, who needs the instructions? Just, yeah. yeah, let's just do it. Mike, was the curry, was it worth the weight, the effort that you put into it? It was tasty. It wasn't worth the six hours effort. <laughs> no, so it, it definitely wasn't worth that. No, but coming coming back to the pearls, I I, I really enjoyed and lots of things resonated um, for me as, as I went through the various sections. Right. But the one section that um, 
really um, I enjoyed the most, which I was surprised about, was the project management one. So mm -hmm. looking at some of the stuff and the areas there that, that really resonated were things around estimates and estimating and ways of estimating. And then when you're challenged about your estimates, I remember having a number of conversations where they said, well, that estimate's too high. Um, the client's never going to pay that. And I think, well, that's my estimate. <laughs> If you want to do something for costing purposes, for quote purposes, then maybe. But actually, in terms of the estimate, on the information I've got, that's the estimate I've come up with. If you can tell me something different. And I think that that message came over from uh, a couple of the pearls, actually, within mm -hmm. that, that you got, Carl. So, yeah, that was quite an important one. There's a me. correlation there. So that, that estimate you're putting in and the salesperson yeah. doesn't want to put it ahead. Mm. If the, you're then delivering that bit of consultancy or whatever it was, the work that you're doing, you have a time and budget overrun, yeah. you're then under pressure, you're on the back foot from the very mm -hmm. start of the initiative, and then you've got a customer that's unhappy that having to pay <laughs> extra time, or the consultancy team takes the hit and it's an unprofitable consultancy assignment. Yeah. It's, kind of, it's a lose-lose. Um, it is. In fact, there's a phrase I've heard for that, when you're uh, particularly if you're in a competitive bidding situation where you're concerned about presenting to the client an estimate that they're going to balk at, you know, oh, that's too high. I'm going to go with this other guy. His estimate was, was you know, much more to my taste. And the uh, story for that or the, the line to keep in mind is the best liar wins. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That doesn't just because you got a lower estimate doesn't mean that that's any more reliable than your estimate, which could very likely have been much more thoughtfully crafted. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there's there's several lessons there that I I, I think uh, Mike are actually relevant. One is the idea that the best answer to any request for an estimate is let me get back to you on that. Mm -hmm. Don't give people estimates off the top Indeed. of your head. Because you haven't done enough analysis, you haven't thought it through, maybe you don't fully understand the scope of the problem or the question being asked. And uh, so you're likely to give an estimate that's far too optimistic, but that sounds very much like a commitment to the person who's hearing it. Indeed, yeah. Yeah, I think that, again, that was something that really chimed, that you, if you're going to do any estimating, do it using as, as many facts as you've got available and consult with other people. The other thing that, um, that it reminded me of as well was the... Um, making sure you're communicating what it what it means as well uh, i've i've worked on plenty of um, projects where uh, you go around and you ask people for individual estimates to pull together into something and their estimate includes a certain amount of contingency and then you're pulling the estimates and you put some contingency and you give that to the project manager who adds in some contingency <laughs> and by the end of it there is so much contingency that it's just uh, it's ridiculous so actually having a a clear understanding about where the contingency is going to be. Um, I think one of our project managers always used to put contingency in there and identify its contingency on top right. of the other contingency because he knew that the managers would say, you take the contingency out. And you think, well, I've still got some contingency. So ha ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> See, we play so many games with estimation because nobody likes you know, giving someone bad news or less than optimistic news. But I was delighted just to hear you say contingency because one of the biggest issues is that people don't think about contingency buffers at all. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Or they just uh, do some artificial um, expansions like, well, my estimate was uh, two weeks, but um, something might be wrong. So uh, I'll say two and a half weeks. Okay, so mm. you sort of just inflate your estimates. But I like what you said, Mike, about explicitly identifying the contingency because we need to build contingency buffers in. I have a lesson that says icebergs are always larger than they appear. Mm. And that I've never seen a project that came out smaller than people thought it was going to be at the end. Um, but, but a lot of them come out larger. So let's build into our plans explicitly at various points. And there are structured ways to do this. Uh, like the critical chain project management, not critical path, a critical chain is a way to do that in an analytical kind of way. And the result is that we can tell when we're tapping into our contingencies and if we know we're still okay. But if you don't plan for that, if you don't plan for the expansion, you don't plan for change, then the very first weird thing that happens on your project, you know, an estimate's low, someone leaves or gets sick or, um, you know, some new task or requirement comes along, the very first thing that happens will throw your schedule off forever. So you need some contingencies to adapt to reality. I often tell people I'm not that crazy about reality sometimes, but it's all I've got. So I have to deal with it. One of the areas I quite like reading about um, was with regard to agile requirements not being not being really that different from other types of requirements. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm inclined to agree, Carl, uh, in terms of, um a want or a need is is a want or a need and and does it matter how you then engineer your software to right. or your solution to meet that want or need um but then there's some semi-controversial things in there and i'm not sure whether or not oh, no. readers will like it but um I, I i was really i found it really refreshing to hear a little bit of um and uh, to read sorry a little bit of um, critique of the user story technique in terms of it not being um, as great a tool at looking at a holistic system as maybe some of the other tools and, and having, I think you give the example of a thousand user stories being having being, having to wade through them. And um, some, some kind of lessons that I think, you know, people are aware of. I don't think, I don't think these, this is a shock for anyone that the user story is not a great technique for looking at a whole system, but um, I don't read about it a great deal. I think people are scared to question the pro or to even talk about the pros and the cons of, of user stories or to question is a, is a requirement, uh, set a requirement in agile. These are, these are semi-controversial subjects. And I was quite, I was, I was really quite, I found it quite refreshing that you tackled them in the book. And some, I thought you put across a reasoned, a reasoned view, um, but I'm hopeful that they they resonate. Hmm. With oh, me too. Three. I hope everything resonates with someone at least. But no, I I guess maybe I'm an iconoclast or something. But um, there were several points related to uh, the user story thing, and uh, that I think maybe led to your response to that. Mm -hmm. One was that. I have a fundamental premise that uh, taking a usage-centric approach to requirements will almost always do a better job of meeting customer needs than taking a product or feature-centric approach. Mm. And that's why for a long time, I've been a fan of use cases because I want to understand what users need to do with their product or their system, whatever you're building. And from that information, then I can derive the necessary functionality to let people do those things. Mm. So that's kind of a top-down approach 
that's sort of how my brain works anyway, yeah. kind of works top down. But contrast that with an approach where we, like we maybe did a very long time ago with requirements discussions is to say, what do you want? Yeah. Or what are your requirements? And those are the worst yeah. questions you can ask during a requirements discussion because no one really knows how to answer those. And what you generally get if you ask the question in you know, some words like that is you get this pile of random pieces of information, some of which could be very important, some of which could be user tasks, but some of them are, are attributes. Well, I, I like a brighter yellow than we usually see. And that turns into a story or, mm -hmm. or what? And so you end up with these little fragments of knowledge and someone has to assemble that bottom up as mm. opposed to more top down. And what happens to me, that analogy is um, assembling a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle by picking up a piece and saying, I wonder where this goes. Mm. Is there another one that it could plug into? And, and that's a, a fairly difficult way to assemble an understanding of, of the requirements. Mm. So I, I like the uh, usage centric approach. Um, I like having some structure to it. Mm. And I think by, um, by focusing on that and user stories, unfortunately, don't always focus that way. Some of them are about usage, but some of them are just about bits of functionality somebody wants. Uh, in isolation. And I think that's harder to work with. So I'm not sure the user story approach when used like that is very helpful. And it's, it's interesting because I, I like use cases and I like user stories. And I think they should be work. They, they, they can be, and I've used them often together. Mm -hmm. Let's take the top down and the, and, and then let's break it into the smaller components, but mm -hmm. don't lose sight of the bigger picture. But um, yeah. there seems to be some, there's some tendency in terms of practice that people are, will only use user stories and they won't see the value of the other tools that are in the toolkit. And I think, I think it's a real shame. Yeah, um, it is. Mike, Mike, are you going to wade in on this discussion? Is it, is it controversial or not? Uh, well, I, yeah, it's a little controversial, but actually it's good to have a bit of controversy. I, I think you're right. I think it is good to have a mix of approaches there. So the top down and the bottom up, because you, you're by approaching things from the different directions, you get a slightly a different perspective and you can see right. other ways through it. And one of, one of the challenges I think from that, the user story approach and just focusing at that low level is non-functional requirements. And that's the subject of another BA brew for, for another day, but um, that's, um, you can easily miss some of those big things that go across the whole piece if, you, if you're right. not thinking on a top-down view. Mm. So, so that's quite a, a challenge for me. For me, it links to rework as well, Carl. So <laughs> we're taking that bottom up, we miss things, if we miss the user stories, for example, uh, sorry, the non-functional requirements, we've got a higher risk of rework and it, it links into design as well. And I know that I, I thought it was interesting, the, uh, the, the gap, the crap gap has made its way into the book. As yeah, well. that's, that's another one of my philosophies. You know, if you hold your hands up about one inch apart, I call that the crap gap. Because mm. a lot of times that's all that separates quality from crap. Mm. And I actually did talk about that in my, my book that we discussed last time, The Thoughtless Design of Everyday Things, because it applies to things you encounter all the time in daily life. And you say, if only they'd tested this a little bit more, if they'd only asked the right person, if they'd only uh, done a little bit more analysis before they went off and built something, then we wouldn't have had this kind of silliness. Mm. So I think that uh, that's pretty pervasive. I once saw a, um, there was a project that was uh, replacing a, uh, a terminal that you tap and pay on in a in shop, a merchant terminal. So it's replacing that functionality. And they'd used use case diagrams to try and dissect the functionality. 
But what they've done is they've created a separate use case for each instance, so each flavor <laughs> of payment terminal. Uh, so the cards were all a different use case. So they've not understood what, I don't think they understood what the use case method was. And mm -hmm. what they did was they created an unman unmanageable set of use cases that nobody could understand because the use case diagram probably had 100 to 150 individual use cases oh, no. in it. So no one could understand it. It was too much. And, <laughs> um, but they just, they, and what they did was they, they said, right, get on with development. Of course. And, and teams came in and looked at it and said, well, your requirements need reworking. But there was this um, fairly egotistical leader that refused to even look at it and it's like no let's drive out the development and, and it's just it was just another failed project and it's kind of that that crap gap between what, what's a what's a high quality use case and a really poor quality use case and mm -hmm. then a foundational set of requirements and i think it's great that you've written down these pearls for people to discuss and learn from mm -hmm. um mike any pearls that you want to share um from your your history oh, well um over the weekend, I was I was sorting through stuff and, and I came across this this badge. And I don't know if you can see that, but back in the 1980s, I had a Saturday job at Woolworths. Woolworths is a, a general store that we used to have in the UK that I think closed down in 2009, something like that. Um, but I had a Saturday job working on the record desk in or the record department in, in the store. And I was thinking, what pearls were there from that? And looking back, all, all of the years and think well what could what useful things could i have picked up from working in um in the record department of of a of a store and i was thinking about it and well actually there's transferable skills there so i was listening to people i was talking to people who came to the desk um at the record um desk that we've got there and they were saying what music they were interested in and trying to get recommendations for things so i was having to learn about listening to people understand what they're interested in and also i had to learn about a lot of the other music that we'd got available so i could make recommendations so that was sort of a listening to people uh, learning more by because we were able to just play any records in the store although maybe not so much moted you could get away with status quo because that just all fitted in <laughs> great stuff though um but yeah moted not too loud not too often but then we could also play stuff back to them and sort of say well have a listen to this and they could listen to snippets and i was kind of thinking that is almost a bit of prototyping so even something that i did over 40 years ago mm. i'm looking at it and thinking well there are things that i i've got from that some skills i've got which i could reuse and have been reusing in in other roles mm. and i was kind of thinking well what other things that maybe we just need to look back at some bits and pieces that we've done and think mm. how can we reuse these things i think about the experiences and and what, what you've gained from it and particularly if you're starting out in your career um maybe it's your first business analysis role or your first job um maybe working in an office environment if you've been working in retail or not had a job before that kind of what can i use from my past experience what can i what can i use and 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 think about and i i think the power of reflection is really key because i'm guessing carl you had to sit and reflect quite a lot what, right. what are the pearls you got any magic up you've got to sit and think about them and reflect what did i learn what did i do what, what's the lesson there I imagine that's quite a difficult process, Carl. Well, um, it is. It's a, a sorting kind of process. And 
Um, what I had done is kind of gradually over my career, as I learned these little things, uh, I sort of built a, a mental file of them. <laughs> and every once in a while, I would make a physical file. Uh, and because I thought my, maybe some of these ideas were worth sharing. At one point, I had this great idea for a page a day calendar with 365 little you know, one liner things like this. And I never quite got that far, but I got up to 65 or 70 of them. And then I said, well, maybe I can turn this into a book. So I started sorting through those and organizing them and figuring out how do I craft it in a way that it's a fairly pithy mm -hmm. one sentence message, but then I'll be able to elaborate on that. So the book contains over a hundred stories, real stories like you both have been sharing here mm -hmm. today of personal experiences that either I've had or other people, many of the reviewers of my manuscript shared their own stories just as you are here. Mm -hmm. And so uh, those, those real stories, I think, illustrate the lessons and show that this isn't just my crackpot scheme. These are actually things that I've learned and other people have learned, maybe not as, as uh, succinctly stated as what I've come up with, but they've got that experience in their brain that they can apply. Just like with your story, Mike, about uh, Woolworths, you learned the uh, value and importance of uh, inquiry with the customers to elicit their needs. Uh, taking an incremental approach, an iterative approach to explore where we're heading toward a solution. And we have to do the same thing with requirements designs. You have to plan to iterate on those and, and approach them rather than just boom, there's the design. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, you're going to come up with a suboptimal solution. Mm -hmm. So I found uh, it was actually fairly easy for me to then reflect on, okay, uh, this pattern of here's a statement of something that's I've learned is important um, that other people I think could perhaps find useful. How do we illustrate that both how we learned it or how we applied it with some of these stories and um, what practices could we use on software projects then if we believe that that statement is, uh, is correct. Yeah. So I've kind of threaded together both the thought processes and the technical practices and also tried to build into the book some guidance in each chapter, some first steps to help people think through some reflection on how they're doing on their projects in that area of requirements or design or culture and whatever. Yeah. Um, and then also some next steps. What are you going to do to try to apply what we've covered in this chapter on your project? Brilliant, brilliant. Um, I just want to say that the one, another one that stuck out for me was get a peer to review your work, uh, Carl. Get the peer to find the fault and 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 I think I think you you use the phrase in the, in the book. Uh, you caught one, uh, some, something along those lines. It's a right? good catch. A good, good catch. catch. That was it. Yeah, that's, that's the phrase that leaps to mind. Yeah. Anytime someone finds an error in my work, I have two reactions. One, I'm not happy that I made an error, but we do. We're people. What's going to happen? Mm. And number two, I'm very glad that someone found it before it went out into the wild. And so my immediate reaction is, ah, good catch. I'm glad you saw that. Thank you. But it, it just struck me as. It's it's putting your ego aside and saying, well, I am going to collaborate with this person. And, and, yes. and that's the point of the peer review. And it's such mm. a useful thing to do. Um, Mike, before we finish the pod, any pearls that you want to share, throw in that we haven't mentioned or any other any any pearls that have stood out for you in the book? I think pearls about people for me um mm. if you just remember what you're dealing with people people have got mm -hmm. all sorts of things going on there's all all kinds of reasons for different behaviors so actually being finding your authentic self and behaving in that authentic way with people uh, listen to them 
I, I think finding quick wins, that's a really, a really good thing, a good way of showing that you understand some of their problems. So one of the things I regularly do when I'm talking to people, if, um, when I say, well, can you just send me an email with a copy of that? Um, within, I think within uh, Microsoft Outlook, um, often they'll then start looking me up on the corporate directory and they'll go through various steps to find me. I say, well, just put the first three letters of my forename and surname in and let Outlook sort all of that out. It can, it can resolve my name. Most of the time it will resolve the name. And just that little thing, that one little thing can save quite a few minutes on an email, but it just demonstrates I've noticed something that we can do that will make their life a little bit easier. And I've shared it. And that kind of buys you some, um, some kudos and respect and showing that actually yeah. you, you're on the same side. Mm -hmm. Just helping people. Carl, mm -hmm. any final thoughts that you wanted to add before we, before we finish today's pod? Well, I appreciate the chance to chat with you about these kinds of things. Uh, these are all things in the book that I've found helpful over my career and in, in my life too. They don't all apply only to technical projects. They apply to daily life. And it's been interesting how I've seen situations where, oh yes, uh, somebody forgot about the idea that we shouldn't be making commitments that we know at the time we're not gonna be able to fulfill. That just uh, causes all kinds of problems. But uh, I've tried to capture a lot of those bits of philosophy and technical observations that I've found helpful and uh, package them in a way that hopefully other people can find accessible. And like you said, Jonathan, you were able to jump to, ahead to the part that you wanted. Um, <laughs> these are little kind of capsulized things that only take a few minutes to read. And so it's pretty easy to bounce around in there and just find a topic you're interested in at the moment and uh, see something that might be able to help you on the next project. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I can't speak for anyone else, but I wished I'd had a book like this at the start of my career. So <laughs> I just say thank you for writing it. Um, I do want to know, Carlo, what's the next book? I'm not sure that the lockdown is going to keep you in for too much longer, but have you already thought what the next book's going to be? Well, it's funny you should ask. I think just yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine and I said, man, I hope this gets over soon. I don't feel like writing another book right now, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's hard to know, right? I, I didn't expect this was going to take two years to, to be stuck here, but uh, I don't actually plan to write any more technical books. I think I've said pretty much all I have to say. Um, but a few years ago, I wrote uh, my first uh, chunk of fiction. I had a terrific idea for a forensic mystery novel mm -hmm. called The Reconstruction. And so I said, I wonder if I can write fiction because the idea was so cool. Hmm. And so I, I wrote a novel and that was the most fun I ever had writing. Uh, I have a few more ideas and about uh, fiction writing. So I might do a little bit more of that or I might just watch TV for a while. I don't know. <laughs> Well, we, we'll wait and see. I, 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 I think, uh, I don't know, I think we'll hear from you sooner rather than later. <laughs> Not impossible. <laughs> right. I just want to say, Carl, thank you for joining us for today's brew. Uh, it's been fantastic having you as a guest. And I also want to say thanks, Mike, for joining us today. Um, and thanks to everyone for watching and listening. And, and for those of watching on video, another snippet of the Woolworth badge. <laughs> um, but um, if you've got any ideas for future be podcasts or you want to join us even um, please do email us it's babrew at assistkd.com thank you